Church. So glad you're able to join us this morning. Well, we're going to be continuing in our uh, Esther series. And um, I'm excited about this morning because we get to look at Esther 4, which is kind of the, the, I don't know, the turning point in Esther. And up until this point, uh, God's, well, God isn't mentioned in this book, which makes Esther a very fascinating book for lots of reasons. And so the byline of our, of our you know, uh, series here is God's hidden glory. And chapter 4 is when things start to become more public and God starts to reveal himself. But he reveals himself through Esther and through people. And so there's this interesting centering thought that we're going to be working through today is that uh, Esther must now start to identify as a Jew. And we're, we're, we're on the heels of, of this chapter where Haman uh, creates this plot successfully to send an edict out to the whole kingdom that Jews are now to be persecuted and destroyed and annihilated uh, in a sort of a genocide sort of fashion. And what we're going to be picking up the story is Mordecai and Esther's response to that, knowing that they're Jews. I don't think anybody else knows that, but uh, that they're deeply saddened by the fact that their people, God's people, are going to be persecuted in this way. So obviously God wants to rescue his people, and now he's going to make his glory and his power manifest through other people. And in order for that to happen, Esther must now identify as a Jew, as one of God's people. And it's kind of this reveal of who God is through someone's willingness to say, this is who I am, and this is my lineage, and this is whom I serve. Uh, very, very powerful. So what I would like to do is just read through chapter 4. It's not very long. Uh, just that we're all on the same page. And then we'll make some observations from this. So, uh, the let's just start. Chapter 4. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs, the female attendants, came out and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of her, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend to her, and ordered him to find out why, uh, what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain to her, and he told him to instruct her to go in, into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have, been, that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. 
So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. So we see here that God is longing to save his people uh, through Esther's faith. And uh, I love this idea that God's hidden glory is made manifest through his people having faith and walking uh, in it and banking on him and trusting him. I think that's the way that God prefers to move is through his children knowing who he is and knowing how trustworthy and faithful he is and, uh, and then walking in it. I love where Mordecai here in this passage says, God will deliver his people. If it's not from you, it's going to be from somebody else. Like, I love that faith. And so why not you? So this is really, this is really powerful. I, I, we think a lot about the idea of identity. Uh, identity in Christ is a popular thing to say because it's very, very true. And this idea of having your identity in Christ is often described in this way that's like it's the, it's the hidden moral chewy center of my faith that like Christ is everything. He's in my heart. I trust him. I love him. And it's the, it has this connotation of being a deeply personal thing. And it is. Uh, but if you change, if you flip the word identity for identify, that's very, very different. And I wonder how much of our identity in Christ has to do with identifying with Christ. In this passage, Esther, her identity now has, like her true identity of being a Jew in this case, she now has to identify as a Jew at great cost to her, with great risk, uh, obviously with great reward, potentially, um, but with, with a lot of costs and there's not a lot of assurances. And I resonate with Esther that I, I'm very comfortable with my identity being in Christ. That's a lovely thought and it's very, very true and I'm so glad that it is. And then you switch the word identity for identify and now we have another discussion on our hands. It's like, okay, there's one thing for this to be true in my heart. It's a whole nother thing to have my heart just be fully put, put on display and to show people my heart and to show people how much Jesus is my identity and Christ is my identity. I think we've had a beautiful example of this just now with the baptisms. It's really all that it is. It's a public declaration and it's why we do it. It's, it's both deeply metaphorical and the idea that we're dying with Christ and being raised to him. That's a really beautiful image. Uh, and it also has a lot to do with the fact that it's a public display. And there is something about going, no, I stand with him. I, uh, I'm going to be uh, crucified with him actually publicly. Uh, thankfully, it's thankfully, thankfully that's metaphorical. Um, but I, I am, I am stating to the world around me in a public display that the way to life is the way Jesus says that it is. And I'm going to follow him. I'm going to follow him unto death and be raised with him again. Very, very powerful. And it's what makes baptism so beautiful is how public it is. Now, obviously, that's not to say that there's not something deeply personal and private that goes on inside of our own hearts. In fact, it needs to precede that. But I love the idea that there's something about the testimony, right? We heard testimonies as well. There's something about the public testimony of someone who's been transformed that seems to be God's favorite way to reveal his hidden glory. It's like, look, look what I've done. Uh, look what I've done in this person. And then look, they're, they're, so, they're so confident in who I am that they're willing to be the mouthpiece. It's actually, it would be actually, it's, it's more powerful to God, for God to work through transformed hearts willing to be vocal about it than it is for him to just fix everything with magic pixie dust. It's like, no, 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 watch my creation choose me. 
watch my creation, find me, know me, love me, live differently, <laughs> bring my glory to earth, that's way more powerful because people actually have to change. They actually have to fall in love with Jesus. They have to not only have their identity in him, but then now identify as someone who knows and loves him. The, the, the Peter's three denials, you know, in the gospel story comes to mind, in the crucifixion story. Of why is that so heartbreaking? It's because he, when push came to shove, he didn't identify with Jesus. Of course, he's reinstated in this beautiful uh, chapter in John, probably one of the most beautiful chapters ever in the Bible, in my opinion, where Peter's reinstated uh, as, as where Jesus just forgives him for that and says, you know, go feed my sheep now. You know, <laughs> I know you betrayed me and you, 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 you denied me. But go feed my sheep. Go love, go love whom I love. Go identify. And I'm going to build my church on you. So powerful. So Jesus builds his church on people that identify with him. And I think today we have an opportunity to learn from Esther and Mordecai in terms of what their fears are, what their response is to their need to be part of the salvation, in this case of the Jews, uh, and to work through the tensions that they had, the fears that they had, the, the faith-filled response that they had. And then we're going to draw some parallels into our lives because I think the parallels work perfectly. We as Christians are called to be on mission, to uh, uh, be part of God's redemption plan for the whole world. And he would long to use us and make his glory manifest through us as the church, choosing to publicly be uh, the hands and feet of Jesus. So we have much to learn from Esther and Mordecai in this story. So I'm going to pull out three observations. And, uh, and then I think that we'll be able to, to learn something from each of them. So I'd like to draw your attention back to verse 10 uh, right now. And this is where Esther is um, basically when Mordecai says, you got to do something. <laughs> you got to do something, Esther. Like, this is a big deal. We're all going to die if you don't do something. And this is her first response is, you don't understand how this works. So let's read verse 10 again. She says, then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in their inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter for them and spares their lives. But I just went there 30 days ago, so um, this is not how th things work. What this tells me is that there's a when we have proactive faith, I think one of the first things, or when we need to have proactive faith in a more public sense, uh, one of the first things that hits me is that one of the first thoughts I think is, wow, this is countercultural. Like when I need to be part of a faith-filled moment, it usually flies directly in the face of the code of conduct of our culture. And I was trying to think of some examples. Um, uh, to me, what I, hear, what I hear Esther saying in essence in this passage is her saying, I'm not allowed to do that. You know, if we, if we take that little chunk of scripture and reduce it down to her just going, look, I'm not allowed to do that. You don't get that. I'm not allowed to do that. I think that every day on when times when I need to be fill, filled with faith. Um, somebody slow pitches me an opportunity to talk about what, usually it's like, what, what makes you happiest in life? You know, don't you, you guys get posed that question sometimes, don't you? What, what's the... What do you care about most? What do you What do you love? What are your hobbies? Someone will ask all the time. For me, it's easy. They say, "What do you do for work?" And I have this. I have to do it every day when someone asks me, "What do you do for work?" And I have to go, "Okay, am I going to say that I'm a pastor, or am I going to say I love Jesus?" There's a big difference, actually. 
and I kind of I feel like I have a, a I'm cheating where I I get opportunities to talk about Jesus all the time simply because what do you do for work is one of the most common questions people ask you. But I still hear the same thing going in my head. Is if I, am I going to say pastor or am I going to say Jesus? And the first thing that goes through my head is I'm not allowed to do that. Yeah, I, that's not how this culture works. It's insulting. And um, you know they're not going to kill me like the king of uh, you know Susa is going to do. But uh, feels equally uh, like it's just not what you're supposed to do. And maybe you know maybe you have opportunities to 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 share who Christ is in your life all the time. And maybe you're like me and the first thought that goes through your head is that's not allowed. Uh, I also hear Esther saying, look, that's maybe, uh, maybe these little bite-sized sentences are helpful for you. I also kind of hear her saying, that's not how this works. Like, I just went there 30 days ago. Like, even if I, even if I drummed up the courage, like I've already, that's not how this works. And maybe next time, like maybe when I get called in, I mean, I think they were only these, they only saw the king every six months or something crazy. Or it was, there were long gaps in between when you, you got to go visit the king or make a request of him, even if you were the queen. And uh, it's just, I can hear Esther saying, that's not how this works. So maybe, you've, maybe you can think of examples in your own life where you're called to have faith. Let's say it's in your finances or something and the things aren't lining up. And the numbers don't quite add up, and you feel as though God's called you to be generous, or He's called you to—I um, don't know—believe for something, but to believe to help somebody, or who knows what. Um, and you hear in your mind, "That's not how this works. I'm supposed to keep my fi- fists clenched tightly around things. I'm supposed to—I'm uh, supposed to—I'm supposed to figure this out on my own." Now, there's one thing to be said for financial responsibility. That's always a good thing, <laughs> of course. But uh, there's a difference between financial responsibility and having your hands gripped around something that God can't use it. And it takes a lot of maturity to know the difference. But uh, the way that I think about it in my head is if I, the way that I know the difference between being responsible and just being fear-filled in the area of money, to keep using that example, is if I start thinking that, uh, if, if I start thinking that, Um, I need to understand how this works and I need to know how this goes and, and I need to fully understand and be in full control. And it scares me to think I'm not in control. Now that starts to be evidence of a lack of faith in my heart. And I hear myself thinking like, you know, when I'm called to be generous, even though I don't, it doesn't seem possible. And I hear my heart saying, that's not how this works. I feel like if there's a faithful response that wells up in my heart that says, uh, um, it's always going to feel culturally absurd to trust. It's always going to feel culturally absurd to be faith-filled. And I, 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 I want to bank on our God. I want to bank on faith. I want to be responsible, yes, but I also want to have a. I want to also be subject to a system I can't understand. I want to follow a God of whom I, I have no control over. And if we don't have that, we really don't have much, hey? <laughs> I, I am betting it all on the fact that God's going to come through and win the day. And if that, that's a culturally absurd thing, aren't we supposed to get as much as we can out of life? In every la- aren't we supposed to just wring the sponge out of every moment being like, I need to soak up every moment and it's up to me to draw every ounce, ass, uh, uh, 
ounce of happiness and purpose out of my life. <laughs> that sounds so hard. And instead I'm going, okay, I'm gonna, uh, how, do you, how do you just have your hands open? Going, okay, God, I know this is culturally absurd to just trust you with my life. But if I don't have you, then all I have left is me. And that's a scarier thought. But I do resonate with Esther. She's going to look, that's not how, I'm not allowed to do that. That's not how this works. And instead, she chooses, even though that's her gut reaction, she chooses to respond in faith. And so we're going to keep going. I'm going to draw your attention to verse 14. This is my second observation. So I'll read verse 14 here. This is Mordecai's next response. Saying, look, Esther, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Uh, what I find so almost funny about this story is that up until this point, it's like Esther and Mordecai have just been kind of blown about by the wind. And it's all seems like it's just happenstance. Mordecai uh, has worked his way up in, a, in, a, in this system, you know, in this Assyrian sort of empire, which means he probably wasn't all that faithful to Jewish law. You know, he's worked his way up into the king's, you know, palace. And um, he, has some, he has some privileged positions. So that speaks to the idea that he's not a very devout Jew. Uh, Esther just kind of gets swept up in this, you know, the king's harem and becomes queen because she's just beautiful and and wins people over, and it's it's not great. It's a pretty worldly lifestyle. It's uh, you sleeping with Gentiles would be a really really bad thing in Jewish law, and you get this you get this uh, impression that they're kind of just blown about and f just have found themselves here. Of course, we know that God's executing a plan throughout all of this, but they certainly didn't. And then Mordecai just kind of almost you feel him sort of bust out of this. Hold on a second here. I wonder if this is all for a reason. I wonder if God's doing this. Because, because and I love how it says here that deliverance is going to come for the Jews. Because I know God loves our people. You can kind of hear him, I don't know, at least I do. I'm, I know I'm embellishing now, but I can, you can kind of hear Mordecai talking himself into this being like, wait, hold on, Yahweh saves. And maybe we're here because he wants to use us. Maybe, perhaps, doesn't he say the word, and, and, and who knows? He says, and who knows, but that you have come to, it's like he's fighting, you can hear him fighting for faith. And like, maybe this isn't all an accident. So this kind of leads to my next observation is that it seems as though proactive faith chooses to see God's providence. Chooses to see it. Um, even when it's hard to see even when you could write it off to circumstance, maybe you do this. Maybe maybe you think that the job you own, that you you find yourself in right now, you just are there because I took this course at school, and so of course I'm here at the thing. Or maybe I'm I, I'm at this church because I stumbled across it, and my friend invited me, or I was born into this church. You know, I, there's kind of always two ways to look at life, and one is but I don't know. Sure, I guess. I guess I'm here. I wonder what we can, you know, get out of this moment. And then this other is like, I wonder what God's doing. I wonder what he's up to. Wait, I see him here and I see him there. And oh my goodness, I can't believe that I wound up here at this time. And I, eyes, proactive faith have eyes to see God working. 
in different places. And Mordecai sort of turns this whole story and the, you know, the most famous line in all of Esther is, for such a time as this, Esther, for such a time as this, maybe this is why you're here. And I feel God speaking to me in this exact same way. I, I, uh, I really care about this particular, maybe you can tell, I really care about seeing the world through eyes of faith because God's given me this really annoying personality trait where I just like to dream big and I like to think things are really going to change. And if I don't have, like if I don't actively every day uh, fight for the idea that God's kingdom could come in our culture, what the, the days that I don't fight for faith in that are sad days for me. And I wish I could, I know that's such a 30,000 foot way of thinking, but I, it really doesn't feel like 30,000 feet to me because um, I just have to believe God can change anything in any moment. And of course, him changing a million moments leads to revival. <laughs> but I just have to believe change is possible. And I kind of, I have lots of, lots of friends in the, in the city and done lots of work with different youth pastors and had the chance to make so many friends in ministry uh, around the Metro Vancouver area. And I've kind of, uh, you know, um, it's kind of just become this, this sort of funny thing that I don't know people make fun of me for, but it, it's just kind of the, the caricature I suppose I've developed of myself where I kind of, and I really love it. And I feel as though it's, uh, it's the only gift I really have to offer any, anybody is that I, when I, when I, when I start to talk about God really changing and moving and like in this case it would be saving a race <laughs> or, and I think about saving a city, the, f- the first thought in my mind is like, of course, of course he would. Why not? Like Mordecai, deliverance will come for the Jews. And I just feel as though I have a, a faith for that. I, I don't have to fight for it most days. That You know what? No, why not? It's kind of the, it's kind of the term that I use a lot with all my friends and we, when we dream about cities and movements and revival and young people changing the, and the city being a different place 50 years from now and all these things. I just had this peace in my heart that's like, why not? Why not that? Don't you know who our God is? Don't you know what he's capable of? Why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't he do that? Now, of course, in the back of my mind, I'm like, I have no idea how you're going to do that. I have no idea. Um, but for sure you can and for sure you want to. And I'm surprised. It, it does take quite a bit of faith to look around and go, you're up to something. I just know it. I just know it. It must be true. It must be true. Uh, my favorite story, I think, uh, my favorite Bible story, is for sure Old Testament Bible story, is the one of um, uh, Jonathan and his armor bearer. It's not just because the name's Jonathan. Uh, and I just love John. They're, they're, you know, the, the Israelites and Philistines are clashing yet again, and Jonathan and his armor bearer are bored because the battle's not happening yet. And he, you know, you just, the image is they're just sitting around a fire, and Jonathan just speaks up and goes, I wonder if we went over there and attacked them, I wonder if God would give them into our hands. I think he says, perhaps. Perhaps the Lord will <laughs> deliver them <laughs> into our hands. I mean, why wouldn't he? You know, and the armor bearer kind of goes, yeah, like whatever you have in mind, I'm with you why not why not bank on that it's just so epic that they would be sitting around a fire and just be like you know what i'm bored i don't feel full of faith right now so let's just go attack them the two of us and then there you know they go to the bottom of the cliff and they're like well if the philistines say this then we'll take it as a sign from the lord and then they do say that in a certain way and they're like 
the Lord's delivered them into our hands. And they climb up there and kick some butt. And, uh, and then they end up scaring off the whole army because two guys, you know, took out a whole <laughs> encampment. And I just, I just think that's so, obviously it doesn't have anything to do with war anymore. But the idea that, that I just feel like that all the time. I feel like a lot of the time I feel like I'm sitting around a fire going, I got to do something that requires faith. Like I got to do something that actually requires Jesus to come through. I just give me something. Give me something to do. Give me, help me see this seemingly bleak situation through eyes of faith. Come on, Lord, give me something concrete to do. Something that, something that I would perish at if I failed. And I think that uh, the church finds itself, the capital C church and ours lumped in, finds itself in a bit of a interesting predicament slash opportunity in this time where church looks different. Community looks different. Discipleship, uh, lots of things have changed and we're having to rethink the modes of, of a lot of what we're doing. And, um, and I feel as though I'm in a bit of a moment right now personally where I feel like, if I'm totally honest with you guys, I feel like I'm sitting around the fire being like, okay, ah, I don't know there's like, there's some Philistines up there. And uh, what, perhaps the Lord will deliver them into our hands. Perhaps the Lord will fight for us. Perhaps the, for, the Lord will fight on our behalf. And I don't really know what to go do. Like uh, we're, <laughs> we're in the middle of really thinking this through as a church being like, okay, God is for sure up to something. Do you think he, do you think he, <laughs> there's no such thing as a classic church service right now by accident? Like he's up to something. He's shaking the tree. <clears throat> and I want to be responsive. I want to see this through eyes of faith. I want to see it through his lens. So proactive faith sees God's providence in everything. Proactive faith sees him working. I'm going to draw your attention to verse 16 now. And I'll make one more observation. And it's this. I'll read verse 16 again. Uh, this is Esther speaking now in response to Mordecai's faith charge we just talked through. She says, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. That's so powerful. And what this tells me is that Esther's faith, this is our third observation, Esther's faith isn't driven by the outcomes. It isn't driven by perfectly understanding how this is going to go. It's very obvious. If I perish, I perish. This might not work. I might fail. I might not be the one. I might have read this wrong. I might have... I don't know. And you can see her dethroning herself as the ultimate authority on how God would want to work. And Mordecai's not actually all that faith instilling if you think about it. He opens the door, but he's like, maybe, maybe you're here for this. <laughs> maybe, maybe. And she goes, maybe. <laughs> I just love that. Maybe, maybe. And what I love about the maybe is that it, it speaks of a deeper trust in God. If it was like, oh my goodness, for sure I'm here for this, for these 19 reasons. 
then it doesn't, it's not faith anymore. It's like, wow, I could look at this and look at that. And it's nice when those things line up and we can see God moving and we can see God's providence in places. And we have stories of that, most of us. But uh, most of the time, we don't understand. And we feel blown about by the wind, just like Esther and Mordecai probably did. Being like, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm here, maybe I'm not. But here's, here's why I feel like that's so important, is that God gives us an opportunity not to build our faith on outcomes that make sense to us. Why? Because I think he's mostly thinking about this idea of trust. And for Esther right now, she's building her faith on her obedience and on her trust of who she vaguely kind of almost knows who God must be. And I think that's beautiful because what it does is it fosters a relationship. I think, uh, I think why God calls us to obey sometimes without knowing outcomes in ways that are costly, uh, in ways that don't make a lot of sense is because it fosters the most precious of resources called trust. And uh, I th I've said this before in a sermon I must have, but I think if you were to measure how much in relationship you were with someone, you'd measure it with the metric of trust. Some people would say like, oh, let's measure it with how much you love someone. But love for me is a harder thing to measure. It's such a complicated word. It has so much so much tension built into it. And uh, I prefer to use the measurement. I don't know why you'd ever measure how much you were in relationship with someone. But if you had to, I think you'd pick trust. Like this person you'd give your car keys to and this person you wouldn't. And there's some kind of scale on that. It's like, well, we're closer to you and I trust you more. It's how close we are. House keys or you know, marriage, like you, you trust certain people at certain degrees and you're willing to give more and more of yourself to how much you know them and trust them, how close you are. And I think the same goes for God. He's only thinking about that. If we have a relational God who wants to know us and love us, and that's all he's thinking about, that's why Jesus died, for us to be close forever. It would make sense that his primary motivation for you and I, for our, our whole lives, is he's trying to get us to trust him and know him and love him and build a relationship with him. It's the foundation of it. And I, you could probably resonate with me in this. When I'm called to obedience, I want to know the outcomes. I want to know the outcomes. How, what's the likelihood I'm going to die? What's the likelihood I'm going to get rejected? What's the likelihood I'm going to end up bankrupt? What's the likelihood I'm going to get shut down? I want to know the outcomes. And then I weigh it and I go, yeah, well, maybe, uh, okay, this time I'll do it. And the whole time, Christians do this all the time. They're just like, no, not that one. And... I don't think God's like, oh, I really needed you to do that. So much as he's heartbroken that you didn't trust him enough. And obedience gets broken down in, into this weird thing that isn't about fostering relationship. If you think about a two-year-old, like you, you need them to obey you and not touch the hot thing because you're, it's the beginning of like, trust me, this is going to go better for you if you trust me. It's like step one in a relationship. That's why toddlers, you're, toddlers, you're not trying to get them to understand your heart. <laughs> you're just trying to get them to obey you. Obey me, trust me, and now we can start to, like, that's the first step. Because if you don't trust me, then you're not going to be my friend when you're 20. Like, if I don't build a trust-based relationship with you right now, first and foremost, through your obedience and submission to me, we're going to have a very hard time when you're a teenager. Because uh, I actually ultimately want to know you and be friends with you. And... Like, I want to have a relationship with you one day. But right now you're a toddler, so trust me. Step one. And we get so insulted. And I think we're just toddlers more often than we'd like to admit. I uh, used to de deal with this all the time with, with, with discipling young people, you know, youth kids. And all the time people would want to know, describe why I should obey. Like, w walk me through this. Why should I obey? And 
Everybody wants to know the outcomes. Is this going to work? How much is it going to hurt? And to try and shift, to try and shift our eyes off of needing to know what God was doing up until now and then is going to do afterwards. I, I don't know, but I do know that he loves you. And I do know that he's going to save his people. And Mordecai says, you know, the deliverance will arise from another place. Uh, and you and your family will perish. Like God's going to say, but are you, do you want to be part of that salvation? Like God's going to do the work. He's going to bring his kingdom. Would you like to be a part of that? It looks like obedience and trust and faith of him and ultimately a relationship with him. Uh, so that is coming. He's going to do that. And you have an opportunity to trust and obey him now. What an amazing privilege. Don't miss this or you'll be destroyed. Or you'll be destroyed along with everybody else that doesn't trust him. Gripping stuff. So uh, I think we're fulfilled in our trust-based relationship with God. And we see these stories of like heroism and rising to greatness and fighting for proactive faith. And I just feel like God is so pleased when we fight for faith and, and walk in, a, in trust with him because it's just, we're just closer and he works through us. And God's hidden glory is actually made manifest through people that love him, not just obey him. We know people, maybe you guys know religious folks who just do what they're told and do the things that they know to do that are good. And obedience can just be this like, oh man, that's so cold. And it ends up hurting people more than it ends up advancing the kingdom because I don't think God's hidden glory is made manifest through good works alone. It's made manifest through passionate people who are in love with Jesus. It's the only reason why we'd be faith-filled in real life. It's the only reason why we'd risk being countercultural. It's the only reason why we'd, 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 um, we'd see God's God in, in everything. It's like, look, there you are. Because we're constantly looking for him and we're in love with him and we know him and we see him there and we see him there. That's what it means to make God's glory manifest. I, um, I found a, just to wrap us up, uh, I found a, a quote by, by C.S. Lewis. I love that guy. I just could read quotes from him all, all, all day long. And um, this is one I hadn't heard before. And I'll, re I'll read it to you. It's kind of talking about why sometimes we don't get answers from God. And there's mystery all the way up until an obedience moment. And there's not a lot of guarantee of outcomes on the other side. But, but there's something about that moment that's so critical. And the mystery is, is, is the, the, the downsides of the mystery are negligible given what happens when we trust him in those mysterious moments. Uh, he says this, I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. You are yourself the answer. Before your face, questions die away. What other answer would suffice? And this is very powerful. As we, are, uh, as we are in a place as a church where uh, I feel as though God is calling us to make his glory manifest in the world around us. I really do. I think we have lots of opportunities for this in the world around us. And uh, my prayer for us is that our obedience would not be driven by knowing the answers. It would be driven by a desperate desire to seek his face and that no other answer but his personhood and his closeness and walking with him would suffice. Not a guarantee of success. That won't suffice. 
not an understanding of backstory that doesn't suffice. Not a, not a pain-free execution of obedience. That doesn't suffice. Only he does. Only he does. In church, I, I, I do think that you and I find ourselves at this point in church history, and it's kind of a unique time. I don't, I don't want to over-sensationalize the pandemic, but, but it is unique. It's, it's, it is unique. And I resonate with the, for such a time as this, um, statement. And so here's my encouragement to us, is that we would be we wouldn't be afraid to be countercultural in our faith. That we would step forward and say, no, 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 this is whom I identify with. His name is Jesus. And he's good. And he's better than this world and he's better than life. I pray that we would see God working in everything. That we would know that the place we work or the church that we go to or the small group that we participate in or the people that we know aren't accidents. And that every single one of those places is an opportunity to be a missionary or a pastor or a friend or a shoulder to cry on or a, or a, a, a salty, abrasive, like corrective presence. Whatever God asks you to do, that we would do that in faith-filled obedience and in love. And I pray that at this time our church wouldn't be driven by outcomes, that our obedience wouldn't be driven by knowing how it's going to work exactly, but that... Uh, that our faith would be anchored in a trust of God. And I think all that's ever, ever precipitated revival of any kind is a group of people who have said, I trust him above all else, and if I perish, I perish. What, what can stop that? <laughs> the enemy can't stop that. What about people who are so faith-filled that say, if I perish, I perish? What can man do? What can the enemy do? It's gripping and it's the hope of the world. So in closing, I want to ask you this question. In whom is your identity hidden? In, to, with whom do you identify? And I think God would long to make his hidden glory manifest through your life if we would have eyes to see, if we would have proactive faith, if we would trust him with our whole being. And let me just say, church, that he is trustworthy and that he does come through. In this life or the next, you are safe in his fold and you are loved more than you ever could be. You don't have to prove it. You are safe and you are free to love and you are free to participate in a life-giving relationship with Christ. You don't have to earn that and you get to walk with him and it's a beautiful invitation. And I pray that as we do that, it would set us free and it would, and it would rescue nations from destruction. And they're not different things. <laughs> a, couple of, a couple of people in this story decide to have eyes of faith and it saves a nation. And if that's not what's going on, I give up already. <laughs> like I, I don't have a plan. Like how do, you, how do you create a plan to save a nation full of... How do, you, how do you create a plan to do that? You don't. He does. He makes it. He, he orchestrates, he moves all the pieces. And then what he asks for is that we would see him in the midst of it all. It transforms everything. And so Esther goes public. She's about to go public with it. You know, in the next chapter, she's going to go, look, this is who I am. This is my identity. And I think it's been important in this moment to wrestle through the cost of that, what the Holy Spirit's trying to do 
through this wrestle and I identify it with a ton. And so I just want to pray for you. Uh, <clears throat> Lord, um, we, 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 we admit that it is a costly and sometimes confusing and mysterious thing to follow you. And sometimes everything just feels like an accident. Sometimes everything just feels like it's, it's hard to see you. But God, thank you for giving us opportunities to trust you. I pray that we would. Give us eyes to, to see you in things, at the bottom of valleys, at the top of mountains. In the midst of confusion, you're there. And even when we don't see how you're working, you are. You are. You are always working. You are bringing salvation to this world. You are a coming king. This is what we anchor everything around. This is what we base all of our trust on. And help us to live that out in the micro. Help us to love what you love. You're so worthy of our adoration. You're so worthy of our intimacy and closeness. And I pray that you would never stop giving us opportunities to have the source of our obedience be a passion for you and to be a trust of you. God, we say that no other answer suffices except you and your presence and your love and your acceptance and your salvation. No other answer suffices. What would you have us do? Reveal to us what you would have us do in this time. Pray that your church would grow mightily in this season because it fell in love with you and it recaptured what it was like to live fully out of a trust of you, not knowing exactly where it's going. Thank you for giving us limited vision. Father, thank you for not showing us everything. I couldn't handle it, and I'd miss you every time. Oh, God, help us to find you. In Jesus' name, amen.